0: For some 800 pages in her classic novel Middlemarch, author Marianne Evans, otherwise known to the world as George Eliot, chronicles the immediate concerns of various inhabitants of a small town in rural England, a small town called Middlemarch. Now, the events of the novel take place at a time of deep social unrest in early 19th century England. And for some 800 pages, George Eliot gives us penetrating insight into the way different individuals in the town engage with and are simultaneously affected by the changing world around them. 800 pages focused on the here and now. But then in the final five pages of the book, five pages after 800 otherwise, then in the final five pages of the book, Eliot, in a masterful move, zooms the camera out, as it were, and in broad strokes describes what happens to these characters and to this town and to this country over the course of the next 50 years. And everything that happens between those early years and now, Eliot shows in these five pages, is somehow connected, connected in real but in unseen ways with the thoughts and the actions and the gestures that occurred earlier that is with the thoughts and the actions and the gestures that took place in the hearts and in the minds and in the lives of these characters we have readers have followed all this time. And so it is then that Middlemarch concludes by Eliot demonstrating through the medium of literary fiction how small and hidden acts in the here and now quietly and in ways we ourselves could never imagine make possible big invisible events of things yet to come. And all of this leading up to the sensational final line of the novel and I quote, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. The growing good of the world, partly dependent on unhistoric acts, of those who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Tombs. Absolutely exquisite. Okay, let me tell you a story. In the eighth grade, which was my final year of middle school, it was announced that for the first time ever, our school district would be including men's volleyball as a competitive sport. We were told that men's volleyball would be held just between the end of soccer season and the beginning of basketball season. And because there would be this downtime between these two sports, many of us who played both soccer and basketball decided that we would try playing volleyball as well. We knew nothing about volleyball, but we figured, hey, why not? And meanwhile, because this would be a new sport and because there would likely not be hordes of people trying out For the team, the coach decided that there would be no cuts, which is to say he decided that everyone who wanted to play would make the team. Now, there was a boy in my middle school whose name was Lance Wright. And if ever there were a kid who had it tough in junior high, it was Lance. Suffice it to say, he was an easy target. And as you know, teenagers can be merciless. And thus for three years I'd watched as my classmates had ridiculed Lance incessantly. Day after day, just brutal. Well, Lance decided that fall that he was going to play volleyball. Now he'd never played volleyball before. And he didn't have a speck of athletic ability to begin with. But nonetheless Lance decided that he wanted to play. Because there would not be any cuts Lance was insured to make the team. And so he did. Well as the season drew on Lance served as something of a glorified ball boy on the team which means that while we would work on our serves and run drills during practice Lance would push the laundry cart around the gym picking up our balls and bringing them back to us as we practiced. And it went on this way for several weeks. And then one day, one fateful day, our coach had something come up, and he had to leave the gym for a few minutes. And in his leaving, he told us to spread out across the two service lines and work on our serves, ensuring us that he would be right back. Well, for the first few minutes that he was gone, we did what we'd been asked to do, and we worked on our serves. And as we did, Lance, all the while, dutifully pushed that laundry cart around the gym, retrieving our balls for us. But then, suddenly, one of the guys on our team, the strongest, meanest, most bullish boy of the bunch, suddenly he noticed Lance and he realized an opportunity so he said hey guys watch this he took his volleyball and he hauled off and he hurled it at Lance missing him only by a margin his ball bouncing off the raised bleachers just behind Lance for his part Lance yelled out hey cut it out his high-pitched voice betraying his obvious humiliation. Well this got an obvious rise out of several of the guys and so they too began throwing their volleyballs at Lance. And this of course inspired still other guys to begin throwing their balls. Now suddenly Lance was engaged in a game of dodgeball of sorts, only it wasn't a game and instead of having fun, Lance was being humiliated. Now by this point, balls were hitting Lance in the chest, in the legs, and in the head, and with each passing throw, and with each passing scream from Lance, at the sight of him jumping around so as to evade the onslaught of balls, as all of this picked up, the laughter and the frivolity of the bunch only increased with it. It was a shameful scene. Now, all these years later, I can look back on that moment and I can faithfully attest that I knew that what was happening was wrong. You see, I've been raised to be a kind child, to be merciful, to be just, to stand up to bullies rather than to become one. I knew better. but the pressure of fitting in can be so strong. And the fear of alienation can be even stronger than that. And so I tell you this whole story so as to confess to you what I, your pastor, did in that moment. Watching Lance dance around in distress, hearing him crying out for us to cut it out, watching this Hearing this, knowing what I should do, here's what I did. Took the ball that was in my hand, the one I was supposed to be using to practice my serve with, and I instead hauled off and I hurled it at Lance, hitting him right in the chest and evincing from him a guttural gasp. I can hear it to this day. Not two minutes later, our coach returned to the gym. We proceeded to act like we'd been practicing our serves the whole time. Lance, too ashamed to tell on us, went right along with picking up the balls. And that was that. And that's the end of the story. And I promise I'll come back to it in a moment. But in order to do this story justice, And in order to do Lance justice, and in order to do this sermon justice, I have to first leave myself suspended in this deeply shameful and unflattering light. And so having said that, turn with me now to the Old Testament prophet Micah, who in our scripture lesson for today is addressing the people of Israel, trying to show them what a God-honoring life really looks like. That is, trying to show them what it really means to live in the way of the Lord. And here, chapter 6, finds Micah asking God, With what shall I come before the Lord? Asking this on behalf of the people of Israel. With what shall I come before the Lord? That is, what words, what actions will prove worthy of God's goodness and mercy? Shall I bring burnt offerings, Micah asks, or shall I bring thousands of rams? Should I give my firstborn child? In other words, what grand gift, what grand gesture, with what dizzying demonstration shall my worthiness be made known? To which the answer comes back. You know what is good. You know what is right. You know what is required of you. And that is simply to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. No grand gesture, no large-scale act, no dizzying demonstration, no loudness or utter visibility, just... Just to live justly every day and to be merciful and kind to everyone and to walk humbly with God. This is such a beautiful passage of scripture, such a meaningful passage of scripture. Which is no doubt why we had several people write in to me for this sermon series citing this verse as their favorite verse in the Bible. And we will come back to this verse momentarily. But for now, I want to turn back to Middlemarch for just a moment and back to George Eliot's principal theme with that novel, which, as you'll recall, is how the health and vitality of tomorrow, or as Eliot puts it, how, quote, the growing good of the world, of how this depends in large measure on the small, unseen, uncelebrated acts of people history neither knows nor remembers, of those whom, as she puts it, quote, lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Which brings me back now to Lance Wright. Let us fast forward about a dozen years from where we left off in our story and I want you to see me now as a 26-year-old young man young man trying to find my way in an increasingly complicated world, burdened by many regrets, one of them being the way I would treated Lance all those years earlier. For you see, as time had gone on, I'd come to think more and more about that moment in the gym, and I'd become deeply ashamed of it. And I'd found myself wishing that I'd someday have a chance to offer Lance an apology. But 12 years had now gone by, 12 years in which I would not seen Lance once, and I therefore imagined I'd never see him again. Well, it just so happens that one day, though I was living elsewhere at the time, one day I was back in my hometown, and I decided to pop into the local Barnes and & Noble. And as I was browsing the fiction section, I looked across the aisle, and who should I see there but Lance Wright. And so here was my opportunity. After all these years of wanting to ask his forgiveness, after all these years of looking back and seeing that moment as a defining moment in my life, one where I had taken the wrong turn after all these years, here now was my opportunity. And so I therefore did what anyone in my situation would do. I immediately ducked behind a bookcase so he wouldn't be able to see me. It all seemed so easy in my mind. But now that the moment had arrived, I was terrified. For what if he didn't want to talk to me? Worse still, what if I offered the apology, but he didn't accept it? What would I do then? How would I feel then? So I stood like that for several minutes, deciding whether or not I had the courage to approach him. But finally, I told myself that should I not take this opportunity, I would regret it for the rest of my life. And that what's more, and that what's far more important, that whether Lance accepted my apology or not was secondary to the point. The point was that he deserved the apology no matter what. And so I left my hiding spot and I approached him. His back was turned to me as I walked up to him. And so when I got within a few feet of him, I said, "Lance." And he turned around and he registered my face, and he immediately lit up, a grin stretched from ear to ear. "Austin Cardi," he said, "How are you, brother?" Surprised by this hugely kind greeting, I told him that I was doing well, and I asked him how he'd been doing. And Lance responded that he, too, had been doing well, and from there we began to make small talk. And after we'd been talking for about two or three minutes, Lance asked if I wanted to sit down in the nearby chairs and continue our conversation. And I told him I would, and so we did. And in the course of the hour-long conversation that followed, I found out that in the 12 years since I had last seen him, Lance had become quite successful. He'd started a gospel music company and had toured the world as a singer and producer. He'd spent significant time as a foreign missionary. He'd even apparently become something of an entrepreneur, having proven adept at finance and investing. I was both amazed by and quite proud of the success that he'd become. And then amid all of that positive talk, Lance then told me some very difficult news. He told me that he'd been diagnosed not long before with cancer, and that it was terminal. He told me he wasn't sure how much longer he had, but that he'd been told that it wouldn't be more than a few years. Now, looking back on that conversation that day, I cannot stress to you how peaceful Lance was when he told me this. Nor can I overemphasize how kind he was to me that day, how gracious, how joyous. How good. And so finally then came the moment. Having just heard this shocking and terrible news I heard myself blurt out Lance years ago when we played volleyball together and as I broached the topic I saw his face register comprehension. Back then I went on there was a day when coach left the gym And several of the guys on the team began to throw volleyballs at you. Lance nodded and he said, I remember. Looking him in the eyes, I then said, well, Lance, I'm not sure whether you realize it or not. But I'm one of those who threw a volleyball at you that day. And I'm ashamed of it. And I've been ashamed of it for a very long time. And I want you to know how deeply sorry I am for that. Lance heard me out. Then he thought for a moment. Then he sat forward in his seat. Then he placed his hand on my knee. Then he looked me in my eye. And then he said to me, I remember that day very well. And no, I didn't realize you were one of the ones who threw a ball at me. But because I know how powerful forgiveness is, and because I too know what it is like to live with guilt and regrets, I want you to know and I want you to hear me say, I forgive you. That is a true story. And Lance and I became good friends. And over the course of the next few years, we regularly got together for coffee and conversation. All because that day when I stood vulnerably before him, he showed me mercy and kindness. Unlike I had done for him when he stood vulnerably before me years earlier. My friend Lance Wright died not quite three years later. And I miss his friendship to this day. And here now is why I tell you this story about Lance Wright today. About a decade ago when I was working as a high school English teacher, I told one of my classes this same story about Lance, told them of how I had acted like a bully toward Lance in middle school and of how Lance had offered me forgiveness even when I didn't deserve it. Truth be told, I'd forgotten I'd told that class that story. But just a couple years ago, at least six or seven years since having told them that story, out of nowhere, I got a note via Facebook from one of the students in that class. And in his note he said to me that throughout high school there had been another young man who had bullied him, a young man who had treated him awfully and had made his life miserable. He said that he'd hated and resented this young man ever since but of how one day, now out of college, he'd run into this young man at a local uh, coffee shop. And he said that much like that day with Lance and me, this other young man approached him and confessed regret for the way that he had treated him in high school. And this former student of mine told me that he did not want to forgive this young man, but he told me that he somehow remembered that story I'd told years earlier remembered what that boy had done for me, remembered how much it had changed my life, and remembered how heroic he thought that boy sounded in the story and the way that I'd told it. And so he told me he opted to offer this young man forgiveness. And he told me that his point in writing to me about all of this was simply to say that much to his surprise he had felt 10 times lighter since offering that forgiveness. He told me that doing so enabled him to offer forgiveness to other people in his life as well. He told me that he was now more at peace with himself and with the world because of it. He told me it was because of the boy in that story that I'd told them. And he thought that I would like to know that. I've spent the vast majority of an overly long story, excuse me, sermon telling you a story. And I hope you recognize that this sermon is the story. For the rest of my former student's life, And for the rest of that other young man's life, for the rest of my life, we will all treat others differently. More mercifully, more humbly, more justly, more righteously because of a boy named Lance Wright. Because of someone the rest of the world will never know. Because of someone who lived faithfully a hidden life and who now rests in an unvisited tomb. Dear family, we often make the mistake of thinking that the growing good of the world depends on grand acts and dizzying demonstrations, on being maximally visible and on being as loud as possible. That is to say, we often make the mistake of thinking that for our lives to be worthy, for our lives to make any real difference, that we must come before the world with grand offerings. but stories like the one I've just told you remind us otherwise. Stories like the one I've just told you remind us of that which the prophet Micah sought to remind us some 2800 years ago, which is that if we want to be good people, if we want to be just and righteous people, if we want our lives to really make a difference, if we want to change the world for the better, we need not principally focus on grand designs, but instead on simply living justly each day. And on treating others with kindness and mercy each day. And on walking humbly before God each day. And if we will if we will, then like little mustard seeds, these small daily acts, that is to say our simple hidden lives, as George Eliot calls them, will cause the world to flower into a more just, more merciful, more wholesome place. the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Oh, might those words someday describe us. Might we have ears to hear. Amen.